Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, Zach Twomley here, and you are listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thank you for listening to When Diplomacy Fails, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just a reminder, When Diplomacy Fails is part of the Agora Podcast Network, and this month we are promoting the hell out of Tom Daly's American Biography Podcast. So if you haven't listened to me already and checked that out, you really should check that out. Normally, this is about the part of the intro that I tell you that I've released a state of the podcast address where I made the shocking announcement that I'm actually going to do a PhD in Cambridge in history. I know, me. Normally I would do something like that and appeal to you for money, but instead of doing all that kind of stuff, once again, I'm just going to, with big thanks to Mark Painter from the History of the 20th Century podcast, leave this here. Greetings, fans of When Diplomacy Fails. This is Mark Painter, a fellow fan of When Diplomacy Fails and the host of the History of the 20th Century podcast, here to remind you to be fit. What is be fit, you ask? and you call yourself a fan. But don't worry, I'll tell you anyway. BFIT is a handy acronym to remind you of the five things you can do to help support when diplomacy fails. B stands for blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. Remember the IE because Zach is Irish. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's true. At the blog, you can read the latest When Diplomacy Fails news and make a contribution, which, let's face it, Zach really needs because our boy is going to Cambridge, and we're proud of him, but it ain't cheap. So send him a few bucks, or euros, or quid, or shekels, or yen. You can make a one-time contribution, or sign up for a monthly recurring contribution starting as low as one euro per month, which, let's face it, one euro added to your credit card bill every month, you won't even notice it. But if you're not ready to contribute money, yet... Don't despair, because there are plenty of other things you can do to help Zach and the podcast. E is for email. Send Zach an email at wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Let him know what you like best about the show. That will help Zach fine-tune the podcast and make it even better. And while you're at it, tell him how much you love the show. Podcasting is a lonely business, and Zach could use a virtual pat on the back every once in a while. F is for Facebook, where you can like the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page and join me and the other 1,728 fans over there and get the latest news from When Diplomacy Fails delivered right to your Facebook feed. I is for iTunes. You can go to the iTunes store and leave a rating and review. 
As a podcaster myself, I can't emphasize enough how important this is. Ratings and reviews will push When Diplomacy Fails higher in the iTunes store, above all those things that call themselves history podcasts but really aren't, to a place where more people like you and me can find it and enjoy it. You'll be helping them as well as Zach. And finally, T is for Tell Somebody. I know it's hard to believe in the here and now 21st century, when we are all plugged into our devices 24-7 and doing our best to avoid all traditional forms of human contact, but the best recommendation is still in-person, face-to-face. So tell someone you know, someone who has a long commute, or runs, or goes on long walks, or works out at the gym, or does a lot of cooking and baking, that a history podcast can stimulate their mind while their hands and legs do those other things. Show them how to subscribe to When Diplomacy Fails and tell them that every so often Zach Twomley will appear on their computer or device and talk to himself in a charming Irish accent about some topic from history. Otto von Bismarck or the July Crisis, most likely. And if that doesn't bring them running, I don't know what will. So that's it, friends of When Diplomacy Fails. Remember to be fit. Thanks! When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 18. Welcome back to our in-depth examination of the reactions to the Queen's speech on the 17th of January 1878. The speech had been designed to communicate to the country, its politicians and people, where Britain stood with respect to the Eastern Crisis. Weeks of turmoil in the British cabinet had preceded the speech, and though Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli had wanted originally to draft a more bellicose version, the speech which British statesmen did hear and did debate here was, for some of them at least, more than bellicose enough. A variety of opinions were circulated and discussed within the post-speech House of Commons debates, but most seemed to suggest that, as a whole, British statesmen did not wish to commit their country to war and that if Britain did go to war for the reasons and in the circumstances that we have examined in the past, there would be outrage. In other words, the policy Disraeli continued to push for and had repeatedly pressured his colleagues to accept, and the policy which Queen Victoria insisted was the only way Britain could maintain her position, was rejected here by the majority of Britain's representatives. It is worth taking a moment to consider the parallels between this situation and the one which I will be focusing even more heavily on, if we ever get there, on the 3rd of August, 1914. In a sense, the two instances were different. Britain in 1878 was not debating whether it should enter the war against Russia, it was merely reacting to the words which the Queen had spoken, in support of a policy of conditional neutrality. Britain in 1914, on the other hand, was debating the speech which Sir Edward Grey had just made to the House of Commons that afternoon, in which he seemed to pledge British assistance to France under certain circumstances. In fact, when you think about it, the two are quite similar, because in both cases British statesmen were debating their own neutrality. 
What will strike you upon hearing the debates of the evening on the 3rd of August, 1914, when, again, we eventually get there, is just how British statesmen then expected neutrality to continue, and how they vowed that war would not be in Britain's interests, and how it would be opposed on numerous grounds. They did not know that the following day their country would be pledged to the slaughter, but by that time, in the space of merely 24 hours, it was too late to take stock of the situation. Really, this is just a roundabout way for me to demonstrate the importance of examining these debates in detail here, because even though these episodes might seem like a bit of a sidetrack in the grand scheme of things, in reality these debates were rich with the kind of history that the debates all down the course of British history were laced with. It is perhaps because I have found them, read them, and now appreciate them that I am bringing them to you. You don't have a choice in the matter, of course, but I hope that hearing the debates will show you the multiple sides to British foreign policy, and will give you context to the kind of world that British statesmen such as Disraeli, Darby and Salisbury often found themselves in. It was a world which challenged them at every turn, it was a world which demanded accountability and explanation, and yet it was still somehow a world in which the big ideas and incredible, almost unrealistic beliefs led statesmen to do foolhardy, sometimes ridiculous things. That contradiction is one to keep in mind, as we go back in time to the 17th of January 1878, where William Gladstone, arch-enemy of Disraeli, and an ever-present cold sore in the mouth of the Conservatives, was just about to speak in the House of Commons in response to the text spoken already in the last episode by Sir Stafford Northcote, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I hope you enjoy it. And apologies again for the somewhat rambling monologue. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. It was finally William Gladstone's turn to speak. Having just communicated as best as he could the nature of the challenges his government had faced, and the way in which it had overcome them since 1874... Sir Stafford Northcote, as Chancellor of the Exchequer in Disraeli's government, surely did not look forward to the power which Gladstone's rhetoric was about to bring to the debate. Gladstone's ability to reduce opposition policy to a damp squib meant that he was still an invaluable member of the Liberals, and was indispensable to that party in the House of Commons, where for years the Conservatives had reigned supreme. In his own unique manner, Gladstone prepared the attack. He said... Diverting my eyes for a moment to the clock, I perceived we have passed what I may call the hour of expectation, and that we have reached now what I may call the hour of despair. Under these circumstances, I do not know that the promise of brevity is of great importance or will be welcome to the House, but I can, after the speech of my right honourable friend, promise great brevity, and with every expectation of keeping that promise. I must say I hardly know how to express my thankfulness for the debate which we have had tonight. Now, sir, I am very desirous not to hold my right honourable friend to any words that he has used, but to make sure that I perfectly understand him, I will now say that I understand him to have used these words. Until we know the Russian demands and conditions, we have no proposals to make. Let my right honourable friend confirm the accuracy of the report that I make of that portion of his speech. To this the Chancellor of the Exchequer nodded in assent, If this is so, I only wish to say that there are many points of great importance that have been raised or curiously referred to in the course of the present evening which I think it would be idle at the present time to go into. 
For instance, the mover of the address in his able and interesting speech referred to the proceedings in 1870. That reference assisted to mislead me into a belief that a proposal was about to be made, and in that case it would have been my duty, with reference to the proceedings in 1870, of which I possess the authentic record, to contend, and I think I could demonstrate, that they would have afforded no justification whatever for such a proposal. There was another point. I will not follow my right honourable friend into the, the historical portion of his speech, which I must say I think rather unhistorical. But in his view, Her Majesty's government is naturally the best of all possible governments, and its acts have been throughout the best of all possible acts. I leave him in possession of the field, and will not enter on any subject of contention such as that. With a compelling combination of satire and fact, Gladstone had managed to grab the attention of those present. It was, after all, quite late in the evening, and no matter how strong the MP's powers of attentions were, when a statesman's speech droned on longer than was bearable, despite the fact that its contents may be important, it was difficult to keep up. Gladstone was the master of long speeches. He had previously talked for over three hours on a variety of topics, and had mobilised and would mobilise the British populace again by such speeches. Now, though he had promised to keep it short and sweet, there was no indication that his rhetoric would be any less effective. He continued with an interesting discussion of Russian ambitions, which would surely have forced those present at the debates to stop and think about the situation in real terms. He said, My right honourable friend next spoke of the demands that Russia had made at the commencement of the war, and said it was material for us to know whether any further demands were to be made. I think many would infer from the language of my right honourable friend, but, I hope, will untruly infer, that he intended to lay down this doctrine, that Russia was bound, having obtained great successes in warlike operations, to limit her demands to the terms for which she was originally willing to keep the peace. This is the point which it is not necessary to discuss at length at present. Such a doctrine as that is totally untenable. It is contradicted by the proceedings of every power. Germany in 1870 had to begin a war simply because she was not willing to give a pledge binding her discretion in the future with respect to a Spanish marriage. But when she succeeded in that war, she was not satisfied with requiring France to withdraw the demand for that pledge. We, in 1854, commenced a war against Russia because the Emperor of Russia would not accede to certain very moderate terms we endeavoured to impose upon him. But as the war advanced, we were not willing to keep the peace on the same terms, but gradually increased the conditions as we made our successes, according to what appeared to be the necessity of the case and the just demands arising out of the military situation. I am almost safe in the assumption that my right honourable friend did not mean to say that it is possible to hold Russia generally to the terms of the London Protocol or the propositions of the Conference at Constantinople. It is perfectly clear that we have no proposal until the government know what are the Russian demands and conditions, and until they know whether these demands and conditions are such as they may think, require action upon their part. Gladstone followed this by issuing something of a warning to the Conservative benches, while at the same time he communicated his satisfaction with the fact that he and his colleagues had not yet been asked to approve any increase in armaments. He said, Then my right honourable friend thought it right to warn the House, in case the necessity of coming to Parliament to ask for additional funds should arise. I will make no complaint as to that. It is a frank and ingenuous proceeding. 
he has immensely relieved our minds by giving us explicit assurances that the case has not yet arrived. And to that warning, I do not think I can give a more frank reply, or better show a corresponding spirit, than I do by saying that we take it as a given that we shall reserve, I for myself, I'm not entitled to speak for others, shall reserve the case to be judged upon its merits when it occurs. I confess I have affirmed the very strongest opinion that the circumstances of our own position would not justify an increase in our military strength, that it would be in a high degree dangerous and injurious, and would have been in glaring contradiction to the expressed wishes of the country. Gladstone finished his speech by emphasising the importance of getting parliamentary support for whatever course the government chose, while he also highlighted again a barely veiled warning that under the present circumstances he would not approve of any proposed increases, since the situation, he felt, did not warrant it. He said, My right honourable friend says he feels he could not go forward without the general support of Parliament and the country. I agree with my right honourable friend in the strongest manner, and I think a difference of party, a great contest in this house, notwithstanding your large majority, of which, of course, you are justified in boasting, a difference of party in this house on a question of foreign policy, of peace or war, or an increase in military establishment connected with the contingency of peace or war, is a public evil of the greatest character, and one never to be encountered except for the sake of averting some other and yet much greater evil, namely the dragging of this country into war, perhaps of Europe into war, for a cause not sanctified by justice. I think I need not trouble the House any further on that matter. My right honourable friend warns us in a friendly spirit, and in the same friendly spirit we warn him that the question will be a very serious one indeed if, upon any circumstances resembling the present circumstances, so far as we know them, a demand of this kind is made. In the meantime we accept with the utmost thankfulness his frank declaration. I have never known an instance when the speech of a minister added so much, and added so much that is satisfactory, to the speech delivered from the throne. And, as is the custom by form of ceremony to call the speech from the throne a gracious speech, I am also thankful for the gracious speech delivered from that bench. I thank my right honourable friend for the relief he has given, not to our minds only, but to the mind of the country. I willingly indeed suppress and reserve all the criticism. I might have been tempted to make on the speech from the throne, had it been construed in a different sense. And while I admit that my right honourable friend is naturally and justly reserved for himself perfect liberty of action, I sincerely hope for all our sakes that the contingency to which he has pointed in making that reservation is a contingency that never may arise. The next individual to speak was Lord Robert Montague a Conservative MP of the old school who had served as Vice President of the Committee of Education under Lord Derby's father from 1867 to 68. He was the MP for West Meath, a constituency in Ireland, and from what I can tell, he may have been leaning towards the sympathies of the Home Rule Party, or at least was confident enough in his position to question and challenge the policies of government, of which he was meant to be, as Conservative, a backbencher. Perhaps I'm merely misreading the info, but it did strike me as odd that a supposedly conservative MP would be so willing to criticise Disraeli's premiership as effectively as he did. Montague's critique was effective because I feel he captured accurately the feeling of paralysis that the cabinet had felt, the fact that the government had languished without a real policy, since that policy had been so hotly debated, for much of 1877, 
could not go unnoticed by Montague, and he made his objections to such a lack of leadership felt. He said, The government failed to lead public opinion. The people remained in doubt until their anxiety became unendurable. They yearned for information and longed for the government to give them some clue as to the just conclusion to which they should arrive. It is the duty of a government to govern or lead the public mind, and not a voice of undoubted and uncontradicted authority was heard. Therefore, the people, after waiting for some time in suspense, took the matter into their own hands and judged for themselves as best as they were able, each man going astray as his feelings or his interests misled him. The agitation, as Montague called it, referred to the fact that the government was perceived as not having a real handle on the situation, and that this led some individuals to judge for themselves what was really going on in the background. Montague's second point even more accurately captured the problem Cabinet faced, that because so many different opinions existed, ministers were often seen to publicly contradict each other. He said, The second cause of the agitation was the unceasing contradictions of ministers. The Chancellor of the Exchequer spoke in Devonshire and said that he saw a piece of blue sky in the political horizon, and that peace between Turkey and Russia was imminent. Three or four days afterwards, Lord Salisbury spoke at Bradford and said that no blue sky was visible, but that all the political atmosphere was as dark, melancholy and dreary as the atmosphere of that manufacturing town. Then the Postmaster General went to Ipswich and contradicted both of his colleagues, pinning his political faith to Lord Ponsonby in the future victories of the Turks. Next we had the Secretary of State for War in Edinburgh, and the only positive statement he made was that England would never allow a separate peace to be concluded. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. ...between the combatants. Yet the news of this day is that Lord Derby has written a dispatch to the port to bid them to conclude at once such a separate piece as the Secretary of State for War then described. The same contradictions and vacillations were be to observed in their proposal to send troops to Gallipoli, for which the noble Marquis on this side, the Marquis of Hardington, has just alluded. It was on a Friday, the 20th of July, I think, that the news came of the Russians having crossed the Balkans. Orders were at once sent to our military and naval stations, commanding troop ships to be at once prepared and 
troops to the number of 10,000 men to be assembled for instant embarkation. Yet before the succeeding Monday, these orders were three times countermanded and three times reenacted. Three times the dockyard labourers were bidden to work overtime and three times they were forbidden. Then on the Monday came the ministerial statement that the intention was only to send 3,000 men in order to raise the garrisons of Malta and Gibraltar to their proper complement. The same contradiction was observable in the refusal to sign the Berlin Memorandum, to which my right honourable friend has also adverted. Yet I differ from him in this estimate of that act. I think that the government was right in refusing and wrong in everything else that they did. They refused to sign because they refused to interfere with the sovereignty and independence of the port. Why then did they agree to the mission of the consuls, which was an illegal interference with the independence of the port? Why did they consent to the illegal interference of the Andresy note? On that occasion, January 18th, Lord Derby wrote a dispatch to the port promising, in the name of England and of Russia, that if the Sultan would sign that note, nothing more should be asked of them, and pledging the faith of England in that case to support the Turks and defend the independence and integrity of the Ottoman Empire. Then, the conference was another illegal interference. Then, again, another contradiction arose, for every one of the bases of the conference, which were propounded by Lord Derby and agreed to by all the powers, bases upon which alone the port would consent to a conference, every one of them was violated in the conference itself. The Protocol of London, again, was a most illegal interference, with the independence of the port and a contradiction of our policy. By means of the conference and protocol, we endorsed the Casus Belli of Russia and made her the mandatory of Europe for the defence of the Christians in those parts, and taught all Christian sects to look to her as their sole champion. This long-winded but highly factual critique exposed the holes in British policy which Disraeli's cabinet had been so afraid to show themselves. For months they had lamented that they ought to have a unified policy, yet the differences between Derby and Disraeli, not to mention the other ministers, meant that the government instead limped towards various forms of protest and accommodation with Russia, a policy which, despite its lack of firm signals, still managed to cause enough friction within cabinet to nearly break it apart by early 1878, as we have seen. Montague followed this by challenging the government and the whole house to act with a proper force, and not to cower in fear from the threat of war, as he believed it was doing. He said, Do you fear war? Fear isolation more and the shame which will cling to you and lessen your consideration in Europe. You have been cajoled, bamboozled and outwitted in diplomacy. Be not now scared by the hobgoblin of Germany and bugbear of Russia. For twenty years you carried on a war against all Europe and America and gloriously withstood their whole power. But there were men in England in those days. But now there is a triple league or conspiracy, you say. Austria has her reckoning to pay to Russia for keeping France from helping her in 1866 when Prussia attacked her, and France has her reckoning to pay to Russia for keeping back Austria's help in 1870 when Prussia attacked her. Both Austria and France suffer from the same slavery of fear. They are slaves that wait on Russia and Germany, and you feel the same slavery, as you fear that Prussia will pounce on Holland and Belgium and Denmark. Fear not, take your stand on treaties, and all the small states will be with you, as treaties are their only security, and France and Austria will be with you. Russia and Germany may be strong in soldiers, but financially and socially they are very weak, and in these directions you have an enormous advantage. 
We are the only power which has not systematically trampled upon treaties. Russia and Germany asked us to join their conspiracy and take Egypt for our share. We refuse to do so. Let us not fall then between two stools. We have abjured injustice. Let us take our stand upon right and not lie prostrate and commit our secret sins in seclusion. We shall only alienate all allies by our selfishness and acquire contempt by our weakness. In this springtide of your fancied security, I tell you that an ebb of troubles is near. A voice of warning and sorrow I raise, though I stand alone. My words I see are unheeded, and their sense does not reach your minds, but these words will be preserved, and will be remembered when you have been softened by misfortunes, and rendered docile by despair. Following this, debate ventured off into another direction, that of Ireland, and reference was made to the series of controversies which Gladstone had once faced when he had tried to create an Irish university there in the 1870s. To many MPs, the memory of such a controversy was still fresh, and much words were said here about the danger Ireland posed to British security. One MP even compared Ireland's danger to that which Poland posed to Russia, and he claimed that the difficulties which London faced with regard to its troublesome neighbour were well known by those in the world who wished to undermine British power. The solution was not easily provided though, because for the next 20 pages or so, MPs listed off reasons for reform and reasons against and concluded, as Irish debates normally did, on the basis that, for the moment, the situation was too fragile in Ireland to do anything rash. This, of course, was the classic Conservative policy represented at home, but there was still no guarantee that it would be represented abroad. Much time was given to debate the actual terms which the Home Rule Party agitated for. Some had reasoned that the demand for a separate parliament in Dublin was too great a request, while others insisted that, considering the history Ireland has endured and in light of the hideous treatment of many Irish prisoners in Australia and elsewhere, Irish MPs had a right to ask far more. The problem, of course, revolved around the fact that such a huge change in how the UK was governed, i.e. that it would no longer be governed exclusively from London, but that Irish affairs would be the concern of Dublin, was too much for the Conservative MPs to bear, and that it would never in any case get past the opposition of the House of Lords, where many individuals had a vested interest in ensuring that British total control of the two islands continued. Then, in an absolutely breathtaking speech, which shook the very walls of the House of Commons with its content, which verged on defiance and sedition at times, one Irish MP for the Home Rule Party made his mark. Tired of the false representations that Ireland had been given, that it was calm and peaceful and essentially ready to stand alongside Britain in any future war, this Irish MP for Westmeath, Timothy Daniel Sullivan, would in time write the Irish rebel anthem, God Save Ireland, an anthem which would receive much attention as the Irish independence movement heated up later in the 19th century. As a speech on the importance of treating the Irish fairly, it has few equals in my mind, but it also reflected the pressing need which Sullivan felt of the urgency in reconciling Ireland and the Irish people with the British before a terrible war struck and both camps were at odds. Such a theme, once again, was rampant in 1914, when the Home Rule crisis then convinced British statesmen that Ireland would not be trusted and would rise against London in the event of a great war. Such a prediction did not pan out, and the Irish went dutifully to the continent alongside their British masters in 1914. But in 1878, 
the fear was evident as well that after years of maltreatment, Ireland could not be relied upon to hold its own or remain loyal to the Crown. Responding to the claims of British MPs that Ireland was not a danger to British security, in a long but impassioned speech that I hope you'll give time to, Sullivan declared, There is not, if you believe my right honourable friend, a more fortunate spot on the face of the habitable globe than Ireland. It is the home of happiness, peace, prosperity, and beneficent rule and abounding loyalty. Hear, hear! You evidently think so too. You know all about it. You know Ireland better than we do. You are better entitled to speak for it than we, the Irish majority. Are you? But pray, by what right does your party hold those benches and rule the destinies of England? But by the right of a parliamentary majority. In virtue of a parliamentary majority, you say you are entitled to speak for England, while in virtue of a parliamentary minority, you would claim to speak for Ireland. But, sir, the question before the House is much wider and much greater and more serious than the merits of the Irish bills which the government has promised. If it were a matter of a better or worse grand jury law or a better or worse intermediate education bill, I, for one, should hesitate to concur in an interposition like the present. The question we raise is that which it may be said Parliament has been especially convoked. We have been told in the royal speech of a possible danger near at hand, of precautions and preparations that may be necessary for the defence of the power and stability of the Empire. Well, we have come forward to suggest the wisest precaution and the most potential preparation which the government could make. The matter is glazed over by avoiding phrases, but the danger that you all mean is war, a war in which England will have to fight for her very existence as a nation. If that war breaks out, if it not be averted as I hope it may be, England will find herself on such a desperate strait as she is not known for 400 years. Your army, small but brave and fearless as ever, will behave with its traditional valour. Wherever it may be sent, on whatever field it may fight, the army of this country will exhibit those splendid qualities that have justly given it worldwide fame. I would say as much for it, even were it not composed as largely as it is of my own brave countrymen. But there is not a military man sitting in this house who does not know and feel the truth of what I say. That a recent memorable war in Europe has demonstrated that courage and prestige no longer compensate as well as they used to do 60 years ago against overwhelming odds, and that your army of 100,000 or 150,000 men would be utterly powerless before the hosts that now stand arrayed and disciplined on the continent of Europe. Should this calamity befall, should this trouble for your existence arise, think you that it is upon inanimate sword and bayonet and ship and gun rather than upon stalwart arms and patriotic enthusiasm your best reliance will be? Should that crisis come, right sure am I that among the English masses patriotic fervour will answer to your call. Throughout England and Scotland it will be so, but will it be so in Ireland? In the spirit of the oath which I swore at that table, and higher obligation still by the duty I owe to conscience and to truth, I dare all misconception and outcry to deliver at this momentous crisis my solemn testimony and belief that if this empire enters upon a struggle of such magnitude while Ireland is in the attitude which Hungary occupied towards Austria previous to Sadova in 1866, the popular enthusiasm which you will receive in England and in Scotland will not respond to you in Ireland. Oh! 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 
I was prepared for your exclamations, and I do not complain, for the statement I have made is serious and naturally unwelcome, but time will vindicate the truth of my words and the integrity of my motives. Twenty or twenty-five years ago, there stood upon the floor of this house a band of Irish members struggling, as we struggle now, to persuade you to listen to Irish demands. Study for yourselves what was their fate. Read for yourselves the lessons of that time. They were voted down, they were shouted down, they were laughed at, they were denounced or derided. You had in that day, as you always have, some gifted and eloquent Irishman in your service to get up and do your work against his countrymen, to contradict their testimony, to take your pleasant tidings which you hailed as gospel truths. While their honest warnings of danger were shrieked against as seditious incentives, John Francis Maguire and others ventured to say in this house, as I say now, that there was danger and disaffection in Ireland. They were set upon angrily, as almost traitors. They were contradicted and condemned. This house, by overwhelming voice, declared their testimony untrue, and that Ireland was peaceable, contented, and loyal to the core. Alas, a year or two barely passed when events there threw a terrible light on all this. At that very moment, my unfortunate countrymen were being sworn in by the thousand in a secret conspiracy for armed insurrection. Barely a few years passed away when the crowded dock, the convict ship, the penal gang, the triangle and the bloody lash, nay the scaffold itself, furnished a frightful contradiction to the pleasant testimonies which you preferred to believe, a frightful corroboration to the warnings you denounced and disregarded. What happened then? Measures prayed for, in vain, in the hour of your tranquillity, when concession would have grace and efficacy, were conceded amidst public disquiet and almost panic. Just look what has been the history of any great political measure passed for Ireland in our own generation. The argument for Catholic emancipation was exhausted in 1819. Its justice was as patent to all men in 1822 as any time afterwards, yet it was resisted and refused until, as the Duke of Wellington declared, civil war seemed inevitable. Was that not a mischievous lesson to Irishmen? The tithe question he resisted until our land was reddened with blood. The church question and the land question. It is a story of recent years. A land bill was passed in 1870 after passions had been aroused, hearts broken, homes desolated by the thousand, after you had filled America with combustible elements that are at this moment a serious menace to England. In 1868, you suddenly overthrew the Irish Church because, as you avowed, of the spread of Fenianism. In the face of the men whose warnings you had angrily resented a few years previously, you came down to this house to concede in an hour of alarm what you had refused to believe in the time of tranquillity. Is this narration true or false? Am I or am I not reciting facts known to you all? What do these facts show? That by some malign fatality, some calamitous coincidence, if nothing more, you scoff at men like my colleagues and myself who beseech you to be just in time. You resist concession in time of calm and yield it only in the face of real or fancied peril. If it not be so, let someone get up tonight and name for us any great national concession made to Ireland under any other circumstances. As it had been, perhaps it is still to be. You will complain of my words, you will say I do not warn but threaten, and you will prefer to believe that those who tell you the Irish masses are contented and well affected, as enthusiastically ready as Englishmen could be to pour their blood in your defence. But I dare all risk of temporary misrepresentation and blame. I look into the future and can await my vindication. Do not affect to mistake our position in this crisis of the Empire. We are not so many members of a party or a section of this house. 
We are not so many advocates of this or that bill. We are the national representation of Ireland, here, in overwhelming majority, to demand the restoration of parliamentary rule and constitutional government. We are projecting no new proposal, like the friends of this or that great reform or amelioration. We are here to call for the restitution of what we had enjoyed and possessed, but which you wrung from us by means held to vitiate and render illegal every public transaction between man and man, between nation and nation. We want our own. Possession gives you no title to it, for no time runs against a claim asserted and renewed as ours has been from generation to generation. Legally, we stand today where we stood 70 years ago. Restored to Ireland the reign of law. It is all she asks as the price of her friendship. A price cheap indeed, for it takes nothing from you that belongs to you. The price of her friendship. You are now in view of a terrible emergency, possibly at hand, searching Europe for allies. Here we are tonight, empowered to offer you one worth the best you could otherwise find. The alliance, the hardy friendship the enthusiastic support of Ireland. I own, I have deep reason to wish this question settled and to see a cordial feeling established between the two countries before dark clouds go darker, and while yet the reconciliation can be free and generous. The peace, the happiness, the tranquillity of Ireland are most dear to me, and I do not wish to see my country desolated and destroyed by being made perhaps a battlefield of the coming struggle. I do not want the ghastly episode of some continental despot making what he would call it a diversion in Ireland, wasting the blood and blasting the hopes of my country in a mere stroke of tactics to serve his own ends. I shudder when I think of such a possibility, and I appeal to you, yes, unchilled by the foregone conclusion of your unwise refusal, I nevertheless raise and record my appeal to you and the English nation tonight, to let us clasp hands in friendship on the only terms on which we can be either allies or friends. Be simply just. That you will be so just, despite your customary refusals now, I am as convinced as I am of my own existence. It is the time which, with your customary unwisdom, you may select for such a step that alone disquiets me. Fear not. Be boldly just. Remember that one of the first acts of the liberated Irish Parliament was to vote 5,000 Irish seamen to the Imperial Navy in a dire emergency. I tell you that your present position is weakness. Austria tried your present policy towards Hungary and changed it after the Battle of Sadova. I hope and pray that you will wait for no such hour to accept the outstretched hand and secure the ready aid of the brave and gallant Irish nation. In response to this, Northcote semi-rebuked Sullivan, insisting that such language was not becoming of an MP in the Commons, and that he was willing to believe Sullivan had been carried away in the heat of the moment. He assured the House that his government had never sought to hold Irish matters back, and that all MPs within Cabinet believed Ireland to be a source of strength, not weakness, because of its examples to foreign nations. Once again, Ireland had been casually swept to one side. The debate in the House of Commons was closed at a quarter to one that night, after hours of talk, swagger and discussion. But just as surely as the Commons felt free to debate the contents of the Queen's speech and the circumstances which Britain faced abroad, so too did the other House, that of the Lords, and in the next episode we'll be examining what they had to say about the Eastern Question, 
as well as other issues pertaining to the security and safety of the realm. Thanks, and see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.